Now, as you know, today's meeting is dedicated to casting a vision for Grace Church, and I hope you'll agree that it is a big vision. We're not just talking about a church vision, but a city vision. We're talking about tipping points, exponential church planting, and seeing the culture of Manchester transformed over a generation. Wow! Just in case you were going to sleep. But I'd be prepared to bet that most of us feel we just don't have much to offer. We look at ourselves, we look inside ourselves, we feel we're very ordinary. If you're a Christian here, I bet you think you're a pretty average Christian, even on a good day. You're not going to set the world on fire. To be honest, much of the time you feel you're just hanging on by your fingernails, don't you? So as we think about our vision for Manchester, a tape will be playing in our hearts. For the younger people, a tape was a thing that was around before MP3s, okay? A tape will be playing in our hearts. We're not going to change the world. Come on. Who do you think you're kidding? Another giant that defeats us is the resistance of our culture. This is not a city where people are tripping over each other and forcing their way into Bible-believing churches, is it? This is not a city where we frequently see people falling on their knees and crying out, what must I do to be saved? Some migrant peoples are very open to the gospel, it's true, and that's wonderful. But the locals are hard as nails. Studies suggest it takes the average British adult 10 years to come to faith. We're in a spiritually hard place. The soil is hard. It just is. And then there's our church. What hope for a church that was founded by two guys who met playing Warhammer. And I say that as a former Dungeons and Dragons addict. A pretty ordinary bunch of people. So what are we really able to achieve? Seriously. Now all the big talk about city vision could actually never leave the runway if we don't address our mindset and the situation of most VOCs. VOC is a very ordinary Christian. And I'm one too. Listen, just think about the first disciples, those people who were later described as turning the world upside down, those people who were handpicked by Jesus himself and trained intensively for three years. Just think about how irredeemably naff they were. If you're from another part of the world, naff means ridiculously poor and rubbish. Now, if you've been around our church in the last six months, we have been preaching through Mark's gospel. Most scholars think that Mark was actually writing material that he got from the apostle Peter. That's why it's so critical of Peter. The great leader of the disciples completely blew it. Didn't understand Jesus, didn't get Jesus' mission really, betrayed Jesus in his hour of need. He was the great leader. What about the rest of them? At one point, Jesus told them, I think it was the second out of three times, how he was going to have to go to Jerusalem, be betrayed, suffer, and be killed, and rise again on the third day. And two of the guys came up to Jesus with their mum to ask for the two top seats in the kingdom. I mean, bringing your mum to ask. Just let us have the left and right hand seats in your kingdom. These guys were, were just terribly lame. And they were the ones who set the world upside down. Mixed ability, Minimum wage, not one of them was tertiary educated or was ever going to set the world on fire. What does Jesus say to them? Here it is up on the screen. He gathered them to him. He went up on a, on a hill, a mountain. 
consciously echoing the posture of Moses many years before in the authoritative giving of God's law. And here's what he said to them. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, so it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is God's word. Helmut Thielicke was a German pastor in the city of Stuttgart during the post-war years, the worst of years. From 1946 to 1948, he preached a series of messages from this part of Matthew's Gospel, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he said in, the, in 1946 uh, about the salt and the light. I wonder whether we comprehend the full enormousness of what Jesus is saying here. After all, what he's saying is this. You disciples standing here before me, you inconspicuous insignificant people you miserable little crowd far more miserable than you realize yourselves for I alone can see what you will do how you will falter and fail in your little corner how you will fall asleep when you should be watching how you will deny me when you should confess me you wretched little troop you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world listen carefully Jesus does not say you should be the salt of the earth as if we could accomplish that, but rather you are salt and light, simply because your Father in heaven calls you to be salt and light. Do you understand this? For it means nothing less than this. The whole earth will be salted and lighted by you. The world will have to reckon with you. The state, industry, politics, culture, all will be within the sphere of your power. Isn't that enough to make you wonder if here somebody is not speaking sheer nonsense? How does the Lord Jesus Christ intend to fuel his revolution that will shake the world through his followers? And what are his followers to be like? Salt, light, and a city. Three images. Spend a few minutes thinking about those three images together, shall we? Firstly, salt, the most commonplace, straightforward image. Even a young child knows what salt is. Jesus uh, could use this, but we at this point have an interpretive problem. Which use of salt is Jesus talking about? Because salt has many different uses. Some readers have looked at the main use of salt in Jesus' culture, which was used for preservation. In times before refrigeration, salt was the main way people kept food from going bad. You could stop something from rotting by rubbing salt into it. So they've, people have concluded, Jesus must be talking about his followers' influence in a culture. Christians are to stop moral rot, stop things going bad. They're preventative. They're to preserve whatever is good in the culture. And once you've taken that line of interpretation, cue a good sermon on how you can preserve the good. But other people say, oh, hang on a minute, hang on. Jesus doesn't actually say that here. And we know that Jesus is 
deeply committed to God's word, the Bible, isn't the main reference for Jesus' thought the Old Testament? So shouldn't we look for how salt is used in the Old Testament rather than how it was used in the culture? And they open their Bible and they find that salt occurs quite a bit in the Old Testament. And they find this verse, Leviticus 2.13. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Hmm. So what would that mean? In some ways, salt is connected with worship, with being the covenant people of God. Maybe Jesus means that his followers keep his covenant. But, you know, even here we have a problem of interpretation because when we open our Bibles and look up every single reference of salt, there are many more than two uses. Scholars have found about 11 that are available. Salt can mean wisdom. Which is it? Now, the answer gives us a good principle when we're studying our Bibles, and let me share that with you for your own Bible reading, which is this. Let's focus on the foreground and less on the background when we're looking at a text. If you're looking at a text, focus on the foreground, what you can see there, rather than what might be in the background. And therefore, we need to ask, in this text, Matthew 5, verse 13, 14, does Jesus highlight any one use of salt? Is there anything in the immediate context that suggests he means one use of salt above others? And the answer is no. Look at what our text says again. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So what's the main point? Salt must be distinctive or it is worthless. If salt wasn't distinctive, you wouldn't take the time to sprinkle it on your food, would you? It must be distinctive. It must be distinctive. And all its goodness and beneficial impact relies on it being different. The key statement in this text is, do not be like them. If salt allows itself to lose its saltiness, it becomes completely worthless. Salt can influence many things. It can influence water, it can influence your food, it can heal wounds. But it can't be resalted. So if it loses its essential properties, it's only good for the rubbish bin. Now, chemists here may argue that salt can't technically lose its saltiness, but Jesus isn't teaching a chemistry lesson, is he? And scholars reckon that salt that they had in those times was an impure mixture, not like the beautiful salt you get on the supermarket shelf. And if it had too many impurities, it would indeed lose its saltiness. The main point here then, for those of us here who follow Jesus, is make sure you're keeping your distinctiveness. Your lifestyle should be different from the world around. Your habits, your character, everything about you should be distinctive to the world around. You should be recognizably different along the lines that Jesus teaches. Now, what does he teach? Well, right before this section, Jesus teaches a number of things. They're called the Beatitudes, statements of blessing, about what it is to live the blessed life. And Jesus here talks about how his followers' in, inside character and motivation is to be completely different and radical. We're to be poor in spirit. We're to be those who mourn for our sins. We're to be the meek, humble, not pushing ourselves forward and proud. We're to hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. We're to show mercy to everyone. We're to have a pure heart. We're to be peacemakers. And yes, for all of this, we will be persecuted. That's what Jesus tells us salt looks like, being different. It was radical. And the verses after this bit show us clearly in the moral world what, it, what it's like to, to follow Jesus. Uh, he talks about murder. He says, you know, uh, the, the law says don't murder. But I tell you, if you are, are angry with your brother or sister in your heart, you've, you've murdered them in your heart. So our obedience to God must go right down to the essence of who we are. Adultery. The law says you shouldn't commit adultery. Jesus says, if you look at someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. He talks about the way we speak and keep our oaths, our language, our promises. We're to be people of utter integrity. This is what a righteous life looks like in Jesus' rule. It's salty in many different ways. And it has, he says, a global impact. You are the salt of the earth. That is not limited to one place, one city, one country, one people group. It's the salt of the earth. Jesus' followers' influence would permeate the world. You're the salt of the earth. Main point, be distinctive. Okay, secondly, the second image is also universal. You are the light of the world. Now, we all know how important light is, don't we? When I was a young child, my parents took us on holiday to North Wales. We went uh, down a slate mine on a tour in the Hlechwed Caverns. They took us in an old miner's lift and down this very rickety shaft. I can remember it to this day. It was quite scary. And we went down. It felt like hundreds of feet into the actual depths of the coal mine where the miners used to go on their knees and dig out the coal by hand. And at the bottom, the tour guide took us along a passageway and to an old door, and then he was the only one with a light, and he had this thing on his helmet, you know, on his old uh, miner's lamps. And he said, right, everyone, get your hand and put it in front of your face. And then he turned the light off, and you could not see a thing. Your hand could be there, and you couldn't see it. And I imagine being trapped in such a place with no light. It was absolutely terrifying. And we were so happy when that light was turned back on. It felt so good. Jesus makes an extraordinary claim for his disciples. You are the light of the world. Sounds great. But what does he mean? Now again, there's more than one use of the word light. The light imagery in the Bible, it's often used as a symbol of truth. God's truth brings light to us. It enlightens our minds. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, says the psalmist. But then again, light is associated with life. In the work of creation, God gives life to the world after he's spoken light into being. Let there be light. John's gospel says that light was the life of people. And light is also associated with holiness. Ephesians chapter 5 says, No immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. 
For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So light is about holiness, about goodness, about moral living. But what about hope? Light breaking in after a long dark night is a powerful image of hope, isn't it? Isaiah says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Well, surely Jesus means all of those things, doesn't he? Now, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount shows us that a lifestyle and community of Jesus' people that's, that's founded on the truth, that's full of life, that's holy, and that holds out hope. But what is the main point that he's making here? What's the main point that we should camp out on? It's this. Christian people must be visible. They must be seen. They mustn't be hidden, but known. Here, I'll read it to you again. You're, a light, you're the light of the world. A, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. And, of course, many of us are tempted to hide our light because of the hostility that might come our way, because people might not like us. Because we'll feel awkward, because we'll come under pressure, because we'll lose status, or we'll lose their affection if they realize that we're really serious about following Jesus. So, if you're a Christian here today, this is what you are. You are salt and light. Jesus gives us two images there of how we are to be in the world. Salty and light. Be distinctive, be visible. But tucked away in the description of light is a third image, and we will close with this. It is an image of community. Jesus says, a town or a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Town, city, it's the same word in the Greek language. And it's very important for us to see this. Because otherwise we could go away with the impression that Christianity is mainly about me being faithful to Jesus as an isolated individual. Like a little light. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Just me, this one little candle. But in case we think individualistically, Jesus now gives us an image that is truly corporate. I don't mean big business, I mean together. Corporate. Here it is. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now why does Jesus reach out and take that image? What does a city mean to the original hearers? Four things. Firstly, safety. A city was a place of refuge. Out there in the wilderness, you were vulnerable. Out there in the wilderness, you were vulnerable to attack from wild beasts and wild people. It was like the Lake District. But a city had high walls, strong gates, the rule of law, safe place. Secondly, diversity. Because there were safe places, there was a far greater diversity found in cities. All life was there, the rich and the poor, the migrant and the marginalized, the new people and the locals. There's a far greater diversity of ethnicities, socioeconomic background, and educational background. People went to the city to make a new life for themselves because they could find other people like them. 
and this is still true today. Third reason they went to cities was for community. A city, town on a hill, is an image of a lot of people living together in close proximity. It's not a hamlet on a hill or a village on a hill. It's a lot of people, diverse people, who have to get along with each other. They have to build and maintain community. Fourth thing in this image is, is, is again, visibility. In the ancient world, there was no electricity, of course, and light was provided by oil lamps and fires. Therefore, the presence of a city could literally be seen for miles and miles around. Cities glowed. It was bright. And the traveler who's out in the dark and the cold sees the lights of the city from far away and thinks, I'm nearly there, and takes heart. And the main point Jesus is making here is that his followers have to be visible to the world around to be seen and recognized as distinctive. Here's a quote from a, a Nicaraguan peasant. A lit up city that's on the top of a hill can be seen from far away, as we can see the lights of San Miguelito from very far away when we are rowing at night on the lake. A city is a great union of people, and as there are a lot of houses together, we see a lot of light. And that's the way our community will be. It will be seen, lighted from far away, if it is united by love. Now that is what we are called to be as Grace Church Manchester in this city. A town, a city on a hill. So what does that look like for us? Safety. Grace Church should be the safest place on earth. So safe that you can bring your social awkwardness, your struggles, your life, your depression, your doubts, your anxiety, your identity struggles, your skepticism, and you will be loved. Not that you will stay as you are. Jesus Christ calls us all to repentance and faith. But you will find safety. You will not be judged harshly as in the rest of the world. You will find an embrace, not a clique. Grace Church should be a safe city. Secondly, diversity. The glorious thing, one of the glorious things about the church of Jesus Christ is that it is the one truly diverse community in the world. And that's because the gospel is a great leveler and a great uniter. Here's the gospel, a message that tells you, you are a wretched sinner. Not just a little bit bad, a wretched sinner. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And if I get that message, if I really believe that I am blind and vile and spiritually bankrupt, then I can no longer look down on anyone else, can I? I'm no longer superior to anyone else. It's such a great leveler. I'm no better. But with this word of judgment comes a word of grace. I am loved by God and accepted by him in Christ. This is how we know what love is. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if I know this love of God, if this love of God is shed abroad in my heart and warms me, then it binds me in unity with brothers and sisters from every conceivable background. Grace Church should be a diverse city. Thirdly, community. Everybody wants community nowadays, don't they? Everything's called community. 
community initiatives, community this, community fund. Everyone's talking about community. But only the gospel really creates community because of this leveling and uniting. But we know, don't we, that community doesn't just happen. You have to work at it. You have to work at it because life is busy and it will be so much easier just to be with your own friends or your family. And because it's far easier just to hang out with people like you than those other awkward so-and-sos at the church. But when the church really gets this and really is determined to pursue community, something very beautiful happens and the world around sees it. Jesus says, this is how you will they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. See, this is how the world will know that we're Jesus' disciples, as if the world sees that we really do love one another. And there's nothing impressive about loving someone who's just your great friend and just like you. There is something extraordinarily impressive about loving someone who you wouldn't naturally love, because there's no earthly explanation for why you would do that. There has to be an explanation from beyond this earth. It's called the gospel. Grace Church should be a community. Fourthly, visibility. Jesus warns his disciples that following him is going to bring opposition and some hostility. It might be through insult. It's not too hard, is it? It might be through false slander. That's a bit more painful. It might be through persecution and rejection. It will come. And he says, don't hide, though you will be tempted to. Don't go to ground and hide in a Christian ghetto. Nice little Christian subculture, a bubble where everybody wears the same sort of clothes, goes to the same sort of shops, talks the same jargon. Don't go, don't go there. Let your light shine before people so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Well, hold on a minute. How come they're praising our Father in heaven? I thought they were persecuting us. Exactly. They see your good deeds and they end up praising God because they see the good, good lives, the obedient lives, the love, the forgiveness, the grace of the Christian community and they end up concluding, there's something in this, I must look into this and they, no matter who they are, get drawn in and they end up praising and worshipping God and joining the great throng around the throne of Jesus. It's amazing to think that the hostile world is also the watching world and through being a visible godly community, the church becomes a place of rescue. So Grace Church should be a city on a hill, a bright shining witness to the gospel, a place of safety, a place of diversity, a place of community, a visible place, known, seen, and engaging. Be distinctive, like salt. Be visible, like light. Be a community, like a city on a hill. So as we finish, Christian friend, this is not about what you should be. This is about what you are. Jesus says so. It's not up for debate. We are salt and light. And this, he says, is how the world will be transformed. This is how the kingdom of God comes. Through ordinary, very ordinary Christians living their very ordinary lives, but being salt, light, and an alternative community. And notice this is all about character, not about ability. The Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes, which are all about inner character, and the Sermon on the Mount ends with the ultimate lifestyle choice. Are you going to build your life, whatever it is, on the words of Jesus, 
or on some other foundation, which in the end will prove to be like building a house on sand. Notice this is not rocket science. To change the world, you don't need to be a hero or a superstar. We don't need another saviour. We already have one. We just need followers. In other words, you don't have to be great. You just have to be godly, living a life of obedience, love, and prayer. You don't have to be clever or gifted or socially competent. You just have to be visible as a Christian, an honest, plain witness. You don't have to do it alone. You're part of a city. It's called Grace Church Manchester. We are family. We shine together. In the life of our community, people experience the love and grace of God. In our gathered Sunday worship, people experience the presence of God and hear his word preached. Back to our German friend, Helmut Thielicke. He concluded, salt and light have one thing in common. They give and expend themselves. And thus they are the opposite of any and every kind of self-centered religion. Salt works and it spends itself in secret. And you can't see it operating. One thinks of the quiet, unobtrusive influence of the Christian upon his or her environment, family, associates, which they exert just by being who they are, by being there in prayer and in love. Light, on the other hand, can be seen. It works openly, invisibly. And here one thinks of the church's task of witnessing publicly to the gospel and of sending men and women into all branches of public life, in politics, industry, culture, education. God gave his only begotten son for the world, therefore we must be salt and light for the world. And certainly the world is worth serving by our sacrifice. Why? Simply because this one man, Jesus, poured out his blood for it. Because this one man, Jesus, first sacrificed himself for us all. You never outgive Jesus Christ. You never expend yourself more than he expended himself. You must be the little grain of salt or the little bit of earth that God has entrusted to you. You must be the glimmer of light for the little world where you live and have your being. And I might add, we must be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden right here in the great city of Manchester. May God bless us and help us to be that.